Dotnet Rocks episode 826 with guest Ken Pugh. Recorded live Thursday, November 8th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. We are recording on stage at the Better Software Conference in Orlando, Florida. And, uh, wow, I just can't believe we're 25 stops into the road trip. Yeah, and it looks like it's going to be a total of 40 now, because we've got a few more stops coming in California, so we're still more than halfway. Make the bad man stop. <laughs> You're getting beaten down That's a little. That's the already. bad man right there. You saw him go by. <laughs> <laughs> All right, better uh, know framework. Hit me. All right, what do you got? Well, I uh, went out looking for popular downloads on CodePlex, and mm-hmm. I found JData, J-A-Y Data. Okay. The cross-platform HTML5 data management library for JavaScript. And I think it's really cool that, you know, in the past we would see a lot of, um, you know, these types of things cropping up on, you know, on uh, in Windows Forms or in ASP.NET, you yeah. know, and now JavaScript. Yeah. JData is a unified data access library for JavaScript to CRUD data from different sources like WebSQL, IndexedDB, MongoDB, OData, HTML5, local storage, Facebook, or YQL. The library can be integrated with Knockout.js or Sencha Touch 2 and can be used on Node.js as well. Isn't that cool? That's awesome. JData.codeplex.com. And uh, seems like the people, uh, well, there's... There's no ratings. The status is stable, but uh, it looks like people are are liking it. Awesome. That's cool. Yeah. So who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment of a show 802, and that's the one we did with Alan Stevens talking about leadership. And this comment comes from uh, Stephen Suing, who says, this was a really great talk. I'm currently, quote, leveling up, and I really need this kind of advice. Unfortunately, most developers today, I don't think, value this kind of advice or perspective. We had Alan talk at our user group, and we had half the attendance of a normal crowd. While most of the regular crowd sees the benefit of non-code talks, it seems the general public doesn't. What the general public might not also understand is general development is getting commoditized, and you either level up or your salary will level out. Nice. Alan gave a fantastic talk and was one of the best of the year. I also tried to apply Alan's perspective to working with an offshore team. Many of his strategies go out the window. For example, you can't have a beer with coworkers or have dinner with their family. Trust and communication are non-existent at the start of the project, and there is only three hours in the day when you can build it. This is probably why most offshore engagements are dysfunctional and produce various results. I have found that in that case, I must favor process over people. This was a hard choice to make, but it does seem to work. When trust is built, though, it's much easier to work. Steven, I still think that Alan's ideas apply, that if you're going to use an offshore team, Either you go there or they come to you. Right. You have to do that trust building. And I don't consider the work time trust building because it's work time. It's when you're actually leaning on trust rather than actually growing it. Trust building happens over meals and it happens off hours. And I don't think it happens any other time. And you can make it work with offshore, but it just requires more travel. Uh, I've done some of that work. I've certainly met lots of folks who have. And it's a really necessary piece of the equation. You know, process can only take you so far. 
or should I call it process? Mm. I don't know. Be true to yourself, Mr. Camel. That's what I say. Process <laughs> it is. <laughs> uh, whether I agree with you or not, doesn't matter. Thanks so much for your comment. So a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NETrocks.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight offers comprehensive developer training online. They have over 350 courses online with, uh, uh, authored by MVPs and industry experts, such as people that appear on our show. And right now you can get a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access to their vast library, which includes courses on topics like JavaScript, HTML5, CSS, processes, uh, just about anything on the Microsoft stack. You name it, it's there. A subscription start at $29 a month. Try Pluralsight today. And with that, let me introduce our guest, Ken Pugh, a fellow consultant with Net Objectives. Ken Pugh helps companies transform into lean, agile through training and coaching. Ken's particular interests are in communicating, particularly effective requirements communication, delivering business value, and using lean principles to deliver high quality quickly. He trains, mentors, and testifies on technology topics ranging from object-oriented design to Linux Unix. Ken's authored the Jolt Award-winning Prefactoring, Interface-Oriented Design, and Lean Agile Acceptance Test-Driven Development, Better Software Through Collaboration. He has helped clients from London to Boston to Sydney to Beijing to Hyderabad. When not computing, Ken enjoys snowboarding, windsurfing, biking, and hiking the Appalachian Trail. He can be reached at ken.pew at netobjectives.com. Welcome, Ken. Thank you very much. Glad to Thank be here. Thank you. Acceptance-based Acceptance test driven development. Acceptance. There's lots of test driven development. That's correct. What makes it different when you call it acceptance test driven development? Okay. Test driven development is done by the programmer, right. by the coder. Mm -hmm. Acceptance test driven development is done by the triad the customer, the tester, and the developer. Oh, interesting. Okay. When a requirement comes out, they get together, meet, and collaborate to come up with a test that represent what the meaning of the requirement is. Isn't that at a, not at a unit level? No, it's in fact, it's at the highest level possible. It's right. external to the system. Hmm. Right. Everything. So this is how the uh, customer or the user is going to interact with the system. Yeah. And unlike TDD, which is where everything is based in the language that you're developing in. So, I mean, if you're doing... Uh, C sharp, then it would be an N unit or, or, um, so forth. Acceptance test driven development is in the language of the user. It's mm -hmm. domain driven testing. And so these tests are, um, will the software do what I want it to do? Exactly. Pretty much. And they further define it. So, for example, suppose that you had a, um, a user story, a typical user story, mm -hmm. something like, as a, as a um, financial person, I want to give discounts to my customers. Okay. Excellent story. But we need a few more details. Right. Things like, okay, so are there only one level of discounts? Are there various values that we should give and so forth? So let's come up with some tests that we're going to give for, to the system that are, we're going to be able to say, this is exactly the type of discount that I wanted the system to give. It almost sounds like you'd end up storyboarding that. You would, you could storyboard these. Mm -hmm. Um, some of the, some of the acceptance tests do assume that you're going through a little bit of a flow, if you will, mm -hmm. a process. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you could add storyboards, but the real part is also adding some data. 
Right. Okay. Because one of the one of the things that testers often have an issue is creating some data that they can test against. Right. Well, we're going to work with the customer and create some data and see how a business rule applies to each of those scenarios in the data. Mm -hmm. And um, what what you'll be doing is catching to see if all the edge cases or the oddities right. come up. And one, I, I can think of so many models of discount. I mean, obviously, there's the scale discount. If you buy one, you get this price. You got 10, you get that price, so forth. You also got that buy five, get the six one free. Like these are, and these are all things that a customer would just rattle off. But from a developer perspective, you're like, holy cow! Well, those this, are very what different. I, what I like about this is that you're sort of talking to the developer about the customer in a language they understand. You're using their, you're going into their world and using their metaphor. Exactly. Yeah. And. Every acceptance test should be understood by the customer. Yeah. Now, we're not asking the customer to supply them all. No. Okay. But we're, we're starting with the customer going, okay. In fact, some, some customers, some, some business people don't feel they're in the business of testing. Right. We're not actually, in the mm -hmm. beginning, asking for a test. No, we're you're... simply asking for an example. Right. I mean, and it sounds just like good old-fashioned user story collecting, right. really. It's user but with a full loop. With right? a full loop. User story collection, but then sort of like playing the role of Columbo. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I, I think I understand. Yeah, get just uh, one more uh, thing. Just, right? just one. Exactly. <laughs> got just one little oh, question oh, no, before but, I go. Um, so if the customer's a really good customer, uh, uh, should, we, should we give them the 1% or the 5%? <laughs> I see, sir. I see. I understand. I understand. No, that's okay. I, I, All right. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, you get, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> should, should I put the two of you in a room together? Really? <laughs> no, but I like it. So, so it's not just like you're gathering the requirements and the stories, but you're coming back at a later time to see if we pass the test. And here's, here's the interesting part. We're going to develop the test first. We're going to gather and they, and now the customer may go away, mm -hmm. but the tester is going to be developing all the edge cases, mm -hmm. right? All the things that he normally would be thinking about post implementation. Yeah. Right. And, and by himself, really. And by himself, or he might be going checking with the customer, but in essence, yeah, mm -hmm. it would be looking at just a requirement and making up some tests against it. So what happens usually? The tester runs a test and he finds a defect. Right. Oh, now we got to go write up a defect, give it back to the programmer. The programmer's going, oh man, I got to fix a defect. I can't work on the new stuff, which is the cool stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. So if we create all the tests up front for a particular story, mm -hmm. we give them to the developer. The developer codes against those tests. Right. Now the code passes those tests. Mm -hmm. The developer's done. Ah, mm. oh, the tester comes up with a new test. I'm sorry. That's not a defect. Mm. That's a missed requirement. Ah, right. Yeah. Okay, yeah, you've changed the tone. You've changed the tone. Yep, sure. But I also wonder why the tester... You know, what I, I really appreciate about this is that testers can construct tests that could fail that, that never would happen in the real world, too. I mean, actually getting those, those specs from the customer also set your boundaries. Exactly. Right. Like, 
they, they, that you would never give a 100% discount or, or 150% discount, you know, those kinds of things. And those things can be caught early. Mm -hmm. exactly. Oh, 150% discount. Good. That means you're going to pay me to accept the order. Right. I like that. <laughs> well, and you're, you're just um, framing what is a natural process in a series of steps and breaking it down and, and providing a path back to resolution on specific things, which it, which is so much better than, you know, here's the spec, go write it, you know. Exactly. They break it down. Uh, yeah. We break it down first. In and fact, from a tester's point of view, it actually takes no more time. Right. Because you got to write the tests at some point. Yeah. So why not write them in the beginning? And, th and this is basically, while you would normally be writing the user stories, which is normally a developer, business person interaction, mm -hmm. you've added in the tester, and he's planning the tests around that at the same time. Precisely. Some sounds, you're actually saving time. You're saving lots of time. In fact, I... Got some. Uh, I have a book out, as you as you mentioned. I right. got some solicited comments, mm -hmm. and one of the solicited comments said, "We cut our rework down from eighty percent to twenty percent." Wow! Wow! Yeah, that's nice. What does that do for productivity? Sure. What does that do for the developer? Going, wow! I don't, I, I don't have to be worrying about all these defects mm -hmm. and revisiting code. I thought I was done with right mm -hmm. which is so. always a problem right it's, as long as it's in your head it's fine as soon as you put it down you mo you're starting over right and again i got to come back to this thing where you know you're you're investing the developer more in the business story and in the user stories because you're using a metaphor with with things that they understand exactly like that is such a big deal and you and you, you haven't it's not foreign to them you know they they now have a framework against which to 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 see that process Precisely. And the, and the thing on, on all these tests is they are, should all be understood by the business, mm -hmm. by the customer. But in yeah. the end, then it's a defining goalposts. I think it's one of the biggest battles we have in software is actually knowing we're done. Right. Because mm. um, <laughs> as you know, projects are never done. They're just abandoned. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and, and, and somebody, somebody likened this, and I, I don't know how you feel about the No Child Left Behind Act. Uh -huh. Okay. And so... If I give you a test and the teacher is going to be judged on the test, what is a teacher going to do? Cheat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Make sure you pass the test. Make sure you pass the test. So he teaches to the test. Right. Now, if I give you all the tests I'm going to write against your code. In advance. In advance. What should you be doing? You should be writing your code so that it passes all the tests. Tests, exactly. Mm. And you don't need any more code. Mm. If you don't need to write any code, not need it to pass a test. Right. Yeah, so you're writing the, the minimum amount, right? You're writing the minimum amount. Now, some of these tests, depending on what you're doing, the acceptance tests actually filter down and become the unit tests mm -hmm. for particular modules. Sure. Okay. So, in fact, if you just were doing unit testing, it's like, where are you getting your ideas from? Where, where, where do you know what the value, the result of a method should be? Mm -hmm. Well, that actually truly somehow comes from an exterior test. And so, in fact, designed of a, of a module is actually taking the exterior acceptance test and breaking that, the parts of it up into the test for the individual modules. I think you're, you're pushing against, I think, what would be the most challenging piece here, which is this is no longer a piece of software you run to build your tests. You know, there's not a, a, a user acceptance-driven 
test module. It's a you have to exercise all kinds of tools to actually capture all those tests. Um, as far as the test goes, there's lots of if. Uh, well, the two issues here. First, it's in writing the test that's the most important thing, right? Because you actually then understand the requirement. And when you say writing, are you talking about writing it out or coding it? I'm I'm talking about writing it out. Okay. Making up. I I tend to favor table-based things because, in mm -hmm. fact, if you're doing business rules, mm -hmm. then you make sure that you've covered all the aspects mm -hmm. by simply looking at a table. Okay. Mm -hmm. and in fact. If you do your table in, in uh, Excel, business people are used to Excel. They like that yeah, a lot. They love <laughs> Excel. So you can use their tool to create the outline for a test. Right. But still, there's this challenge of taking that written form and showing it as a red light, green light moment oh, in your app. Exactly. And so we've got a lot of different things to use for that. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not an advocate of any particular tool. I do, do use fit and fitness, right? But I have examples in my book from the robot framework, uh, easy B, mm -hmm. uh, the slim version of fitness. Mm -hmm. And so, but you don't want to automate anything until you've actually gotten the, the, the real results that you, mm. that you need. Sure. And so it's, it's the tool selection comes and, and it's a fairly straightforward. Like if you're doing a table, Fit and fit. Uh, fit is actually no longer being supported. Right. Mm -hmm. Fitness is the is the current product. Mm -hmm. Fitness can you can just actually read in an Excel spreadsheet, and that then becomes the test huh. that is run by uh, fitness. <laughs> this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems. All of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. It does sound like when you talk about some of these more complex tests, like working through how the, the discount gets calculated and how it's entered in, like that seems almost right at the UI level. Like constructing that test is not a trivial thing. Ah, okay. So, so let's take an example like that. Okay. If we're doing a, a um, say, a customer discount, yep. we can actually state the flow without having a user interface, right? We can talk about here's an having an order of $100 or something with these items in it. Then when we compute the the discount, it should be this much. Right. So and, and to your point there, you have not described elements of a UI at all there. No, you talk exactly. about a process. Right. Just talking about the process. Let's get the process done correctly and understood correctly. And in fact, acceptance tests should be almost UI independent. Mhm. Mm now, and so in other words, they shouldn't go like, you're going to 
There's going to be a text box. You're going to enter this. You're going to click this. Exactly. That's not it. Yeah. That is not it. In fact, so I mean, right? And writing out those tests in a, a good form, I think, is part of the challenge of this. Precisely. Precisely. And so, part of the things, in fact, um, one of the suggestions and that actually is a fit fitness style table is what's called an action table. Mm-hmm. And so, you simply just put something like enter would be a keyword. Yep. Uh, order amount. And then you put a value there right. and enter the customer type and you put a value there and then you press compute discount. Now, if you've got something like that, which can be easily automated, if we had a UI, then we can take that exact same description of the action right. and we give it to some test, uh, a manual tester and say, enter this information yeah, in follow the, the UI, script. follow yeah. this script. And now... What we're doing is actually testing the usability of the UI. Right. Yeah. In other words, if you can't find where to enter the order amount, mm. we have a bad UI. Yeah, you're actually answering a different question. <laughs> a different question. Related to that test. Exactly, with the same test. Okay. So uh, where like in the that. process do you like to introduce the UI design? No. I consider that... Uh, Oh, UI or UI prototypes, just if the customer and the team is having an, uh, some issues with just visualizing the whole flow. Okay. Uh, what I'm saying is, where in the process of the software development lifecycle do you like to introduce the UI Oh, when design? do I d- introduce UI? Yeah. After we've created the acceptance test. Okay. Okay. Because now we have an information on w- what is needed. Right. Mm-hmm. As an input to the UI. Right. So you, you don't want to start with a whiteboard and I want this screen and I want that screen. You don't even, you don't go there until we're done with the process. With, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let's understand the process first. Yep. Now, if it turns out that you really, in order to understand the process, need a little whiteboarding of a UI, right. I'm not, I'm not saying don't do that. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's, use whatever tools you need to understand the sure. process. But it does sound like we get a very early engagement with the business owner, and you've added some structure so that we, we don't sort of gloss over user stories. Because oh. the process of, of executing on that test infrastructure is going to make you pr- prosecute a user story in more detail. Exactly. And, exactly. and more importantly, have a place to come back to the end of the user story, you know, to complete the loop. And you've completed the loop once you're done with the acceptance test. Right. Now, let me just mention to everybody there, I have a few tester buddies here yep. who always go, you know, Ken, that's not all the testing there is. Right. <laughs> and I go, exactly. In fact, in my book, I show a, show a diagram that uh, Brian Merrick first came up with. Mm-hmm. And we have on one side, we have the acceptance test or the functional test. Right. With acceptance tests up at the top, which are business facing. Yep. And they fold down into the unit test underneath. Mm-hmm. Then on the right hand side, we have the cross-functionality test or the non-functional test. Usability. Nobody can write a test for usability up front. No, it's because one of those, it's a very exploratory thing. How does this feel? How do, Exactly. Does it feel right? So we've designed our UI, but do you right. really like it? Um, you've got the exploratory testing, mm-hmm. which who knows what may be found. Right. You're, you're looking. And you've also, and you've got the performance and the security issues as right. well. So you've got those. Generally things that, that customers can't articulate beyond the idea of it should be security and performance. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then, as, and it sort of goes along with the exploratory testing. 
each of our acceptance tests has flowed and, and has tested a single user story. Mm -hmm. But what about the long workflow? that crosses yeah. lots of user stories. Right, right. We still need to do those tests to make sure something works right. And, and is this still fall into the ballywick of acceptance testing? This would be this would be still acceptance testing, but now that's something that you'd start to work with a customer and you're like, okay, so we've got the individual stories. Let's do a few sequences here to make sure that the entire flow works correctly and mm -hmm. that we've gotten it all correct. Um and that's where the exploratory tester, in fact, would go, okay, so you said that's the flow. What if we did the flow slightly differently? Mm -hmm. Just suppose, just for a minute, <laughs> that, that they did it the other way. Yeah. What exactly would be the outcome of that? Yeah, I'm yeah. Just, just curious. Just, just, just like that. Just like, uh, it's like, it's like, as, as anybody said, who doesn't understand exploratory testing, it's like, when you go to that website and you order the thing and it says, don't press the back button. Yeah. <laughs> why, why would somebody press the button? Just ask me, answer me that question. Well, gee, I don't know. They'd have to be pretty stupid. Yeah, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. Okay, I, I, I'll, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Yeah, yeah but, but if I press the back button... I might get the order for free. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, Richard, guess what time it is? Oh, it must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to give away Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Awesome. Today's winner is Randy Bone from Danville, New Hampshire. Oh, congratulations, Randy. Cheers, Randy. He's, uh, he's definitely appreciative of that. I already talked to him by email. And uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, we give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection every show, and uh, that's everything that Telerik does in one box. Thousands of dollars worth of software. Right. And speaking of thousands of dollars worth of software, in December, we're putting together a $5,000 super geek out package for one lucky listener and member of the fan club. We have thousands of listeners. Just go to .netrocks.com and click on the big Get Free Stuff button, which is in the upper right-hand corner, and uh, you two can... Be entered to join. So now, every December, $5,000 worth of technology. We haven't picked out what we're going to give away this year. Got some Maybe ideas. Maybe we'll have options. We have some ideas, but we like to ask our guests. If you had a blank check, five grand, but you had to spend it on toys, what would you buy? Wow. Oh, well, actually, since I'm a C++ programmer and right. I do a lot of, or I used to, not not anymore. Do a lot of Windows work. I definitely get a copy of Visual Studio. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You get an MSDN subscription is what you're saying. Yep. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And maybe some new hardware to go along with it? New hardware. Something in like a Win8 uh, oh, a a Win Surface 8 Pro. Oh, a Win8 tablet. Yeah, yeah. That'd be nice, that too. That might be nice. Something to write some software on. Yeah. Um, I think it, I think an MSDN subscription is about 1200 bucks right now. Okay. Yeah, the basic one. And a good... Uh, Pro will be around twelve hundred as well, so you're halfway. You need to spend more money, Ken. <laughs> Boy, um, you throw in a in a Kindle Fire and an iPad Mini and a few other devices, maybe. Uh, well, no, 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 no. I'm I I would be going for the uh, twenty five hundred dollars fifty five inch T 
TV. Right. Nice. Great yeah. big TV. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. With an HDMI input that you could drive your laptop from. Uh, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Developing with a big screen. A wireless, <laughs> a wireless mouse and keyboard in a stainless steel room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <man. sighs> Ken, you were you wanted to talk a little bit about distributed teams uh, in reference to uh, our listeners' comment on the website. Exactly. So I actually have worked some with distributed teams. Mm-hmm. In fact, I even have a, a talk that I do for about an hour and a half that if any company is, is starting and thinking about a distributed team, I can give some of the pros and cons sure. and things to do. But one of the biggest things, and you sort of mentioned it, is having a face-to-face meeting. Yes. In fact, Skype. Yeah. Um, one of the things they did is hire the best developers across the world, and they let them live where they wanted to live. Right. But when they started a project, they brought them all together in a face-to-face meeting for a couple of weeks. And then, yeah, and funny because we say Skype, you think, oh, face-to-face on the screen. But you're saying in their physical presence, all in the same room together. Precisely. All in the same room together. They were there for a week or two. Right. They got everything, their their framework, everything they're doing, and then they went back home and worked on the project. And, w- and what are the times, you, you know, when they talk about trying to establish trust there, what are the practices that take place when you're together to really build up trust? You go for lunch together. You yep. go play games together. You go and you start developing the architecture a little bit on a whiteboard because that's a having a whiteboard and a face-to-face meeting is the best way you can Powerful solve problems. Plus, when you're together in the same room, there's always the threat of physical violence. <laughs> 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 Maybe lurking somewhere in the back of the subconscious, you know, in the reptile brain there. Yeah. There's something like, I better not make this person angry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but if you do, you at least least have the fun of getting it out physically. Yeah, that's true. Okay. At least it's there. It's not just people banging their heads on their screens. And yeah. so I have a phrase that I've developed re- regarding face-to-face meetings because, in fact, the accountants always come in and go, oh, we can't afford to have a yeah, face-to-face Yeah, this totally meeting. undermines our whole point about having a distributed right, team and right. saving all that office costs and so forth. And so with all the trust and all the other things that you can do with a face-to-face meeting, my, here's my phrase. You are going to pay for a face-to-face meeting regardless of whether you have it or not. Nice. That's fine. And in fact, if you don't have it, it'll cost you more. Sure. And early and often, right? Like Early early and often. Yeah. You have those meetings up front. They save money in the end. But the accountants don't see that. Sure. They don't see the ineffectiveness. Yeah. Ineffectiveness is a harder thing to price. And it tends to be priced at the end. Right. When there's many other excuses for why we... You know, co- this costs more. So, if you can't have the whole team, as you sort of suggested, at least send some representatives to yeah. each other. Have have your ambassador, have your diplomats, and also go to both places. Yeah, I think that's yeah, important. That's right. Bring them to you, and you go to them. them. At least some. At least some. So it's like like. On, on many uh, distributed teams, it's like we are the ones in charge, and you are our. People who are going to do what we say. Sure. You want it a peer-to-peer relationship. Yeah. Right. So right. it works both. It does work both ways. Now, certainly at the beginning of a project, but any other times that you think a face-to-face is essential? Whenever you get to a point where you start to have problems you can't solve over email, right. or when you're just looking at each other on the screen and it's just not working, 
that's when you need another face-to-face. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, see, uh, the old producer's line you that's love. That's right. Let's, let's eat. go. Let's eat. Yeah, and this is, this is these are the in, in audio production school. This is the the two most valuable words in any project, and it has helped me in every walk of life, not just in you know when when you, you know the drummer just can't make that hit, and you know everybody's getting frustrated and their blood sugar is getting low. You know, you just you say you st- stop that downward spiral and say, let's eat. You break for lunch. You come back. You eat together, right? And you come yep. back and everybody's like in a different place. A whole different place. Yeah, mm-hmm. ready to ready to collaborate. So that, there is a point in the, in the process of a team operating where there is, starts to be a downward spiral. And as soon as you see that, it's like, time for a meeting. Time for yeah, a meeting. Yeah, that downward spiral, that's the key, right? Yeah. You can see that happening. And in some ways you can start to prevent that da- downward spiral mm-hmm. is actually have what I call the virtual meeting space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay? You've... It isn't that separate meeting room for telecommunications that everybody right. sells for $100,000 and nobody can afford it. Right. Okay. I want my 55-inch video screen. That's right. <laughs> yeah. An always-on camera. Yeah. And, a, and it's a half-circular table. And yeah. on the other end is a half-circular table with a video screen. Yeah. And we just, in fact, get together at lunch. Yeah. But I love that metaphor of there's this circular table that bridges between the two spaces. Exactly. Yeah. I and love it. That's cool. Yeah, that's and it's always cool. on. You get together, you play games at lunch, yeah. and you at least, if you can't be together, at right. least be as close together as you can. And you do think that FaceTime digitally, be seeing each other's faces. Oh, precisely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, if all it is, it's a conference call. Boring. Sure. <laughs> well, and people do other things. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Right. That's right. See, we're, we're sitting <laughs> here together, so things. I can see your faces. Yeah. If we were three on separate phones here, yep. right. we'd be interrupting each other or having long pauses because it's like, I don't know whether you're going to say something. Yeah. Or you, you don't actually know if we're listening, right? Yeah, if, you could probably uh, be typing could, away. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and now you can't see him. <laughs> so, I like that sign. Yep. So yeah, it's got to be it's got to be face to face because over fifty percent of communication mm. is through visual, yeah, right. nonverbal, nonverbal, yeah. And the people on the phone can't see my hand gesticulating at all right. of these right. things, right? So yeah, and your expressions. I, I also struggle with: is the video camera good enough? Are we actually capturing all that? There's so many cues that are subtle, and right. the uh, the the nature of digital communication suppresses a lot of that. So yeah, I don't think you're getting the full experience either. I think digitally. it'll get better. Yeah, I got to hope. This is why you want an HD connection. Yeah, an HD connection, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah, HD has made sure that everybody's not as pretty as you thought. <laughs> <laughs> so what's more important, a better picture or less uh, latency? I latency, would go for the less latency. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. At a certain point. I mean, that can really mess with your... Mess with your... Mess with your communication. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so the most important question I have is... <laughs> discuss. Uh, done way too much of that. Oh, yeah. We uh, actually, on our show... You know, every we go through waves where we have luck with Skype, and then it comes back to bite us, and we lose what is, you know, possibly like the best interview we've ever had. Right, and it's gone because yep. we, the Skype just garbles out. Yeah. yeah.
So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's Component1Spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component1. Smarter components for smarter developers. FaceTime, very important. Uh, and it's one thing to have a distributed development team. When you're building software and some of your stakeholders are in one place and some of the stakeholders are in another place, I mean, can you make that work? Like you, you think about that, inter- that, that tri- triad interaction, right. the, the business owner, the developer, the tester. I just can't imagine how successful you'd be without those three people in the same room. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. It is truly hard. If that's what you got to do, you got to make it work. Right. But that's when you truly need the face-to-face meeting as mm-hmm. much as possible. And it's not that much time in the overall spectrum of the project. No. Like that, I would rather spend that week or so that we're together on that than anything else. Precisely. Yeah. Like those, that's sort of the most valuable thing we can do in FaceTime to really get an understanding of what each person's role is in the app and, and what their concerns are. You know, you're sort of setting yourself up for success there. It would almost be a waste to write code during that little time span. And, and the other issue, in fact, if, if you're truly distributed and say that you've got your stakeholders in one place and your implementers in another place, yep. that even if you can't get all together all the time, if you can at least create those acceptance tests, mm-hmm. the black and white things saying, this is the way I want ours to work, then you eliminate the long feedback cycles. Right. Sure. Okay. Oh, I've, I've, here's something I want you to do. 12 hours later, they start doing it. Now it comes back to you. If you don't have some pure That's absolute right. test, it goes, this isn't what I meant. And right. then it takes another 24-hour cycle. <laughs> to try and deal yeah. with that again. Exactly. And you know, I know that's exactly what I said before, but I got something to add to it. <laughs> We're going to just change it up here. I know that you just spent 12 hours coding that, but we just... <laughs> uh, and the time zone parts, which uh, which the, the listener commented on, which you, that overlap time is can be very small. In fact, almost non-existent. Right. And so, in fact, the other the other th- point that I always make is, if you've got it such that it's always going to be an out of work where you actually can communicate with each other, right? Alternate the out of work, right? So yeah. it it isn't like you guys so are. It's not all in one. It's side. all in one place. Yeah. yeah. Share the pain. Yeah. 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 If we're, yeah. we're going to choose to be twelve hours out of phase of each other. You know, one time it's you guys working at 6 p.m. and one time it's us working at 6 a.m. Exactly. Yeah. And exactly. so at least it's, you know, we're, we're not always one guy's at his best and one guy's at his worst. Precisely. Yep. So. And then every so often you're going to need to get back together again. But I, I do think avoiding the 12-hour out-of-phase thing is fairly important. That's a long way out of phase. <laughs> that is a long way. You mentioned you send your ambassadors or your, you know, your diplomats. Do you think that that's actually an, uh, an important job role in the whole software process now just somebody and maybe not maybe it's a manager but you know somebody who spends their time 
going physically between places and uh, and trying to keep people connected either you know the through through your interaction with them or through meetings uh, you know virtual meetings or I would I would have both. I would have a team member who's interacting with the other team members. So we're getting on an peer to peer relationship yeah. going. And you may want to have a manager going around circulating among all of the uh, of the places if mm-hmm. you've got so many some some places distributed teams are over six different locations. Right. And so you need your manager to circulate around among all of the management types to make sure that things are on board as an ambassador and then the next manager circulates around and you pick each manager gets to go mm-hmm. to a for better or worse and it's really a, yeah. that connecting personality that can step in each of those rooms mm-hmm. and, and engage with folks and, and understand where they're coming from and make sure they carry that truth onto the others but, you know, that's, right. that's actually a skill in, in and of itself Absolutely. And especially you know somebody who isn't completely garbled by so much travel and somebody who who can relate to each one of the teams and do that on an ongoing basis, I would almost rather try to find the person who's strong in that regard and, and uh, dub them the ambassador of the project, you know, so that they can, they can make the, the trips. Um, you could do that. I mean, there's always the trade-offs mm-hmm. and everything. Yeah. And, and having one person who's really skilled at it is really great. But and also, a, a if, good you, communicator. if you want to just interact with the team members themselves and have yeah. to mix it up because you can't get them all together. So then send yeah. somebody on there. Have you ever seen folks do the long haul thing? I, I was working with one group where uh, one of the developers on the one side would right. literally spend three months in the other country with the other part of the team. Mm. Yeah. And it, I mean, and there were, these were young guys. It was a great adventure. <laughs> but yeah. talk about building trust because now they're having the experience of being in the country. These guys are now their friends. You know, they've, they've and done this great thing. More importantly, there's one person on the other side that can, you know, f- translate either culturally or, uh, you know, across, across teams as, as a representative in that place. So. So the com- the cross communication back to his team is more effective, right? Because he's so, doing it. Yep. So that 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 works well if you can find somebody like that who's willing if, to take a. If yeah. you've got somebody who's forty years old and has a couple of kids in school, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So. The, that those are marriage limiting behaviors. That's yeah, right. yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah, young guys who want that adventure and 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 they get back to your idea. It's not just a senior guy that should be doing that traveling. Right. Here's a younger guy who can actually take that three months, and it's mm-hmm. going to make him a better developer. It's going to significantly help the project, right? You know, and and sort of raises his stature in the in the overall project. And he's got to be a pretty outgoing motivator. Motivator, yeah. And I would do it a switch. Yeah. At the same time, you have one from each place yep. go to another place. Yeah. Yep. On both sides, yeah, and on both, both have sides. that experience. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very challenging to, to to make all of that work. It does add complexity to the project, and you got to struggle with the value around it. Although, let's face it, there's more development to be done than there are developers. Yes. Yep. You can't. Yep. You can't. You know, just focus on your local folks if you've got all the work you want to get done. Yeah. Exactly. So digging back into this whole test uh, cycle, because I'm. You know, I'm, I'm spending more time working with DevOps folks that want to automate and automate and automate and automate. Right. There's clearly classes of tests here that just won't automate. There are some tests, mm-hmm. that I, particularly exploratory tests, mm-hmm. that it's impossible to automate. Right. Okay. Um, you may write some scripts for them, but you really, you truly want to be going along going, okay, so what should I do now? Uh, what happens if this happens? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. It is those insightful moments. Although those... From a developer's perspective, those are the most frustrating things because they pop up new requirements. 
They, they pop mm -hmm. up new kinds of tests. I, uh, when I actually went and did all this, guys, this isn't good. Yeah. Well, it wasn't in the original requirement set. Yeah, I know. That still doesn't mean it isn't good. Right. Mm. So actually you know, dealing with that problem, it's, it's angering tests. <laughs> this is why we're grumpy with testers. <laughs> but the amount of those tests will be, I mean, the amount of regular defects will be greatly reduced. Right. Yeah. And so now these become what I call the worthy defect. Nice. Okay. This is the one that says, okay, your individual parts are all working together. Mm -hmm. Is the whole thing working? Right. right. It's, it's the big picture. The big picture thing. Which, I mean, obviously it has to work. Yeah. And you might get into a corner case where you go, nobody in their right mind would, would ever do that. Right. So, so in fact, let me give you an example. Your compiler, guys, since you're Visual Studio. Yep. Sure. How many different options are there in Visual Studio? Uh, oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I would put it. If you start few. putting combinations together, tens of thousands. Yeah. Oh, there's a, a more than tens of thousands. I think you probably have at least 50 different options. Right. And even if we just take on and off, you have two to the 52nd. Right. Yeah. Um, do you know how long it takes to check a compiler for two to the 52nd different options? <laughs> a while. That's a lot. Uh, I will guarantee that you won't be able to do that mm -hmm. in a reasonable amount of time. Fair. So, do you guys test for all of those options? No. <laughs> all right. So, what you got to do, in fact, one compiler manufacturer, and I won't say who, basically what they do is randomize the options every time. Okay? And they run... How do you test the compiler? You compile a program and you execute it and see that it executes correctly. Right, sure. Of course, you can't do this for just one program. Mm -hmm. You got to do this for lots of different programs. Sure. Thousands of programs. Sure. So what they do is they compile, then they execute 100 test machines every night for 10 hours, a thousand test machines for two weeks. Wow. When you're doing, when you're just literally just um, doing the final release check. Mm -hmm. So they randomize. They they run their regular it's sort of tests. the chaos monkey thing. They, just, yeah, they do yeah, the chaos yeah. monkey thing, just like the Unix. Yeah, the Unix chaos monkey mm -hmm. thing. And they find the combination that it doesn't work for. Mm. Now, how much time are you going to spend as the compiler writers trying to figure out if this combination of seventeen options? What caused the defect? Right. Because the well, tendency would be to throw away the test. It just go, well, that, that's an unreasonable combination. That's an mm -hmm. unreasonable combination. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, they do somewhat the equivalent, but they already know that this combination doesn't work. So, they put in their input module, they have a little table. And if the right. user inputs and asks the compilation with that exact combination of 17 options, right. they come out with a statement, I'm sorry, our compiler does not support this. Right. <laughs> nice. That's it. Well, so you just you're going back the other way. You're talking yeah. about you're, you're talking about inside Windows, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, if the program you're running is, you know, Quattro Pro, you know, right. then message this. box dot show. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. 
We're not doing that. We're right. not doing but, that. But, you know, the other side of that is just you want to know if a customer would ever do that. So, right. you know, getting to that point, get, at least giving them the warning, then they could even push back at you to go, I really need this combination. Here's why. Right. But it, I mean, the, I think the biggest challenge here is just how many cycles, when one of those random things pops up, how many cycles do you put into it? Precisely. Just, you know, take a look at this. What is this about? And to quote Microsoft over and over again, why would you ever want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, now you got me hooked on this because I'm thinking, as soon as that came up with a failure, I would want to feed that back into the tool that would then vary various switches, like leave... 16 right. of those settings the same and change one of them and see and run it again and just sort of well that's what i would do yeah check all around that spectrum to say what is the sort of if domain area where that causes that error if, ah. if there's a com if combination of 17 turns out to actually be a combination of two yeah right right yeah, doing but that you, installation but you were bringing us to the conclusion already that we it's definitely this 17 no more no less yeah interesting that is interesting <laughs> That makes me want to write test differently again, you know? It's, it's, it's well, the point is, you can't test everything. Right. You, I mean... Human beings are far weirder than test suites. <laughs> right. <laughs> to quote my friend Richard Campbell. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and so, you, you've got to, in fact, uh, James Bach had the concept of good enough software. Mm -hmm. I don't yeah. know if you've heard that. And it's like... At least if we can find what our de uh, where our defects are and we realize that the probability of that actually occurring is low, mm. well, let's just do something to mitigate mm -hmm. that defect occurring. Mm -hmm. But we, we don't have it's, – it's not worth us to spend $100,000 mm. because there's just not a business value, associated business yeah. value. In it. Yeah. I mean, we, we always think about software has so much return on value. That we rarely spend a lot of time looking at its overall cost, but you can make software no longer profitable, not actually providing return if you spend enough on it. Exactly. All right, I'm with you. It's it's an interesting space to get into, and we're definitely getting out there. So, Ken, what's next for you? What's next for me? Um, I've got a few more trips, a coaching trips. Mm -hmm. I I coach Kanban. Right. Um, and I coach Lean Agile in general. Mm -hmm. I also do Scrum, but we're our company net objectives is more focusing on Kanban now, right? Yep. Uh, for a couple of reasons. First, that's easier to transition into, mm -hmm. and secondly, some of the issues of um, and that have come up with Scrum actually do not come up with Kanban. So, are you uh, talking about distributed teams in particular? Uh, distributed teams work with Kanban, right. oh, but more in particular. Uh, one of, one of the biggest places Kanban is the easiest thing to fit into is with maintenance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so how long is it going to take to solve that defect? So how can I schedule a defect into an iteration if I don't know how long it's going yeah. to take? Right. And if I knew how long it's going to take, then is it really that much of a defect? Right. <laughs> Well, generally, by the time you know how long it takes to fix a defect, you fixed it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, hmm. so I'm in Kanban. I'm into, um, in fact, we just mentioned it, business value. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, my, my, um, I do also a session on determining business value. Mm -hmm. Because if you're going to deliver business value, you've got to be able to measure business sure. value. What do we always measure in a software project? Mostly, How, hmm? mostly time. Mostly time. Yeah. Cost. 
right? Do we ever measure the benefit? Now, not often enough, I think. The benefit is sort of assumed if the the, the the designers and the customer knows exactly what they want, then they we assume that as software developers that they know what they need for their business to be valuable. Right. Yeah. And so all I my my session is simply on let's have the business estimate business value on your items. Hmm. Just on the same way that um, if you're doing Scrum or Kanban, you're doing placing some estimates on the story effort. Sure. Yeah. Let's do the same thing on the business value effort. Mm -hmm. Now we have two good outcomes of this. First, when we deliver a story, we have our business value chart. Yeah. Right. And you see how the business value is increasing. Mm -hmm. Now I show you the business value chart you don't need to see the story point chart. <laughs> right. Just look at the money. Just look at the money you're getting. <laughs> yeah. And the second thing is, if you take business value and divide it by the effort estimate, mm -hmm. you get a measure what I call bang for the buck. Right. It's a return on investment. Mm -hmm. And it answers that thing, well, should we really do this? Yeah. Well, if it's worth three business value points and one effort point, that's a bang that's for the buck of three. Yeah. Easy. That's right. If it is one business value and three business uh, story points, points yeah. that's point three. Yeah, let's put that one off to the end. Right. Mm -hmm. well, certainly it gives you a priority list, but yeah, and you, you start to talk impact essentially. You talk impact. Yeah. And mm -hmm. and you know, my my thing is that if a business owner or the customer doesn't want to assign business value to the stories. Sort of a red what flag. What are we doing? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, Mr. Stockholder. Hey, yeah. I got one question. Yeah. Just one more question <laughs> one more before question. we wrap up here. <laughs> what exactly? Uh... Yeah. Well, that's. Uh, I think that's the show, Ken. Thank okay. You. Thank you very much for joining us. You're quite welcome. Thank it's you for having me. Such a pleasure to talk to you, and, and uh, thanks for all your insight. You're quite welcome. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening, and remember. Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the MCC. Yes, I'm a 